Hello there, and you're very welcome along to the very first podcast from RacingNews365.com. We're the new English language side to the very successful Dutch website, RacingNews365.nl. My name is Thomas Marr. I've just joined up with Racing News 365, and I'm joined on the line by Dieter Rankin. And Dieter, we were just talking before we came on air, and you were just saying that uh, the next race that you're going to represents your 342nd Grand Prix. That's a lot of air miles. Absolutely, Thomas. But I think more importantly, it's an awful lot of Formula One experience that I've been fortunate enough to to obtain during the, the last 21-odd years. And when I look back on the very first uh, Grand Prix for which I had media accreditation, namely the British Grand Prix in 1997, I recall sort of as I swiped the card thinking, well, if I never get accreditation again, I've done it once. And I sort of grinned all weekend. And here sort of 340 odd races later, um, you know, the, the passion hasn't hasn't uh, diminished at all. I'm raring to go, really looking at uh, forward to getting on the aeroplane tomorrow, fly to Bahrain. I was at testing last week. So, you know, it really has become um, not a way of life, yes, but equally it's, it's, it's also a self-fulfilling passion on a continuous basis. Well, what we're aiming to do with this podcast is to keep listeners informed about everything that's going on, uh, offer our own opinions and analysis on what's going on in the world of Formula One as well. And of course, offering that unique insight that you're able to offer from being on the ground in the paddock as often as possible. So, Dieter, Let's look back at testing from last week. It's a bit of a unique testing situation in that we only got three days, which of course is is nothing compared to what we've seen in previous years. What what was your impression? Were were people caught off guard? Were they prepared for for the lack of testing? I think it's uh, it, it's a bit of both actually, Thomas, because yeah, basically testing started later because you know the Australian Grand Prix has been postponed to the end of the year. That gave Formula One an additional fortnight to play with. So the teams were sort of able to uh, to prepare for a bit longer. Equally, the cars you know, are effectively rolled over versions of last year's cars due to the COVID situation. So there wasn't that much new on them. Of course, they have been developed in certain areas. Yes, of course, the, the tyres are new. Yes, of course, the engines have been upgraded. But by and large, they are, are basically rolled over versions to the degree that a lot of teams have called theirs the B version or, or whatever. So uh, there, there wasn't that much new for the teams to learn. Plus, of course, they'd been in Bahrain last year, November. So they, they knew the circuit. They knew the, um, the sort of conditions because nothing much changes in the, in the desert over two or three months. From that perspective, there were no real surprises However, as, as always in Formula One, you know, there are some new things. And, you know, we saw that Mercedes had gearbox issues. We saw that, that Aston Martin had gearbox issues. We were very pleasantly surprised that, that Alpha Tauri had managed to get it together, with, uh, particularly with uh, Yuki Tsunoda. He was second fastest when, you know, all the times had been shaken out. So, yeah, there was a bit of both. I mean, some of the teams did take, a lot, take away an awful lot of data Others less so, but I'm sure that they've spent the last week and a half-ish uh, crunching through the stuff. 
The biggest change really since last year in the regulations is the simplification of the aerodynamic rules, particularly regard with regards to the floor and the rear area of the floor and the rear section of the cars. And we've seen that that lack of downforce does seem to have caused some issues for the teams. The, the cars have been designed to be a little bit slower than last year. The teams are now seeking to make up for that lost downforce. Some of the teams already say they've clawed back a lot of that downforce. But we've seen with even the likes of Mercedes that uh, that lack of rear downforce does seem to have caught them out a little bit. We saw Lewis Hamilton having a couple of spins that, that's very uncharacteristic for him. Absolutely. But I think we, we can't separate the... The, um, the downforce reduction from the, the new harder tires, a far more robust sidewall construction, they're about 0.3 or 0.4 of a second slower. Some teams reckon up to half a second a lap slower. And I think one has to view these two together. And um, yeah, sure, the teams have worked very hard at clawing back some of the downforce, but even so, the, the front rear end balance, as you say, is a bit out of kilter. I think that's going to take some work. Equally, they, the, the teams will have to get used to these tyres and their characteristics. Um, the teams were no longer as critical as they had been last year when they ran back-to-back -back tests with these tyres in Portugal, for example. But, of course, the cars then hadn't really been op optimised for these tyres, and therefore, you know, all they did is they bolted them on an FP2 and they went out and did a couple of laps. Well, they were different. They were a bit slower. And, of course, all the drivers said, oh, you're going backwards. But now that the cars have been optimized, now that there is no other option, they've got to run on these. There were no major complaints whatsoever. Uh, as far as the, the rear downforce situation is concerned, it was intriguing to, when I say uh, learn about the different um, solutions that teams had found, of course, under COVID, we're not allowed to go into the paddock and roam as freely as we did before. Also, the, the sort of pit lane is out of bounds to us although we were exceptionally, because it was testing, permitted to go through on Sunday morning. But I stress that that was exceptional. We are hoping, of course, that it will happen in future as well. But we went through the, um, uh, through the pit lane on, on Sunday morning. The teams were entitled to have their screens up. They took them down for us very, very kindly so we could have a look. And it was intriguing to see whatever what, whatever we could see from from that walkthrough. Uh, intriguing to see the different uh, solutions. Uh, McLaren, for example, have got a, a very very clever interpretation of that, where basically they've turned it into a, a, a full scale diffuser in the in the centre portion. And you know that was the talking point on Friday morning. Everybody said, "Ah, oh, did you see McLaren's rear diffuser?" When we spoke to James Key about it, he said, well, you know, as far as we were concerned, this was a pretty logical area to look at. That's what the regulation said, 250 millimeters either side of the center line. And that's what we looked at. So it will be intriguing to see how long others take to catch on. However, let's not forget that the elephant in the room is, of course, the budget cap, because whatever you spend now on updating the 2021 car is $1 less available for the 2022 car and this crossover point is going to be absolutely critical absolutely critical and i think because of that we could find that the pecking order does change during the course of the season as certain teams are saying well you know we really want to maximize our results in 2021 because it's worth fourth or third place in the championship or whatever that's five or ten million dollars uh, and we'll uh, do 2022 on the fly so to speak
Others are going to say, no, we really want to start 2022 strongly, and therefore they're going to start switching across a lot earlier. And that's going to be one of the fascinating aspects of this season. That point of convergence at at which development is going to swap from the 2021 car to the 2022 car is obviously going to be a very important point. And it, it makes it crucial for each team to ensure that they hit the ground running uh, this season with the cars that they have designed for this year. Mercedes' James Allison said at the at the launch of the W12 that it'd be brilliant for them if their car was just blisteringly fast right out of the blocks and they wouldn't have to do any more development and they could swap that uh, concentration to next year. That hasn't really happened though. Uh, so do you think that as a result we'll see the likes of Red Bull steal a march and possibly be able to hold on to that momentum well i think there are two factors here thomas the first one is the fact that uh, you know as we've seen in the past mercedes may not have appeared to be particularly impressive in testing come the first race man they pull it all out the bag and that's it you know nobody else sees them for dust and in this case will obviously be Bahraini dust um, so you know, I do I do take James's point, and I don't believe at all for a single moment that he's really hoodwinking us. But I think he's being rather cautious here. Point one and point two. I think the other side to it is that the um, the uh, the the entire uh, scenario is going to be such that you know we we take Haas for example. They've said we're not going to develop the twenty one car. We're going to develop the twenty twenty two car. As far as Red Bull are concerned, we should not forget that the um, uh, that at Honda, this is Honda's last official season. They are going to go all out. I believe that 2009, after they they pulled out at the end of 2008, they sort of got burned by the fact that their car, so to speak, won the championship with a brawn uh, as a brawn and also the Mercedes engine. And I think what they're going to do is ensure that the um, that they go all out this year and and honestly give it everything they can to try and ensure that they go out the high because they realize it's probably going to be the last chance that they've got of winning a world championship, certainly for the foreseeable future. Another thing we need to take into account for this year, Dieter, is the aero testing regulations that have been introduced, which of course is a is a sliding scale. So. The more successful you were last year, the less testing time you have, the less wind tunnel time you have this year, while, say, for the likes of Williams, they get a lot more testing time. I think that the figure is a 22% difference in in testing time for CFD and wind tunnel. This is going to be a crucial development for for next season's development, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it, it hangs together with the budget cap restrictions. So there are restrictions and these will increasingly hit the, the front runners who first of all have been used to having the luxury of, of throwing whatever they have at it. And then, of course, uh, you know, the front runners will also be restricted in terms of, of the, the wind tunnel and CFD time as a result of this. This I'm going to call it for the purposes of, of, of this particular podcast a sort of an, a wind tunnel ballast, so to speak. And uh, so there will be hit. Uh, and I think that will be interesting. However, what we shouldn't forget is that it's, you know, you really need to know exactly what you're doing to just give somebody 22 percent more wind tunnel time doesn't necessarily give them an advantage or vice versa. Uh, so I think the teams have really got to be jacked up to take advantage of that. Of course, every little bit helps, but will it, would it help Williams find two seconds a lap 
I doubt it very much. As we've heard, um, uh, Haas are not going to be updating their car, so that time we spend on next year's car. So I don't think that that in itself is a major factor. I think the biggest factor will be the reduction in in, uh, uh, budgets, which means that the big teams can't develop both cars simultaneously. This will be the big, big differentiator. The one thing we have to take away from testing is the fact that Red Bull and Alpha Tauri both looked very, very strong and similarly strong, it has to be said, Max Verstappen and Yuki Tsunoda, uh, respectively for the two teams going very, very quickly on the on the softer compounds. Uh, yes, of course. Um, so, you know, there, there is that to it. Let's not forget that Max is very, very well entrenched in, in Red Bull. So from that perspective, he knows the way the team works. He knows the engineers. He knows the people. He knows the processes, the systems. Uh, he's very comfortable there. Uh, he sort of he's made it his own team, so to speak, over the last four years. So um, I wasn't at all surprised to see Max topping the um, the, the timesheets, particularly as he'd also won in, in Abu Dhabi. Uh, so that that was no surprise. What was a really, really big surprise was to see Yuki Tsunoda up there. There's never been any doubt about how quick he is, but he's certainly adapted very, very fast. I spoke to him on Friday night, and it really was an absolute pleasure. In fact, I'm grinning as I say this to you, because there he was really living the dream. He was bouncy, very good English, very, very, uh, very expressive. Uh, we asked him questions. We got straight answers. And, you know, I, uh, this guy has certainly got... A a very bright future in Formula One. He's cool as a cucumber, isn't he? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, the other interesting thing is that he came onto Red Bull's radar as a result of the Honda Link and not because of anything he'd really done in the sort of junior categories because, um, you know, he did his, his junior stuff in, in Japan. And Red Bull, of course, didn't have their scouts out there or or not to the same degree as they have in Europe. So he was sort of under the radar. But as a result of the the Honda connection, which he's got, and then, of course, Red Bull have, uh, that's how he came on the radar. And it was was very interesting to to hear about that. I mean, basically, um, uh, he is Japan's best hope of a world champion, I would like to say possibly forever. When I say forever, retrospectively, the best they've ever had so far. Well, he'll get his first chance at a possible race victory first time out based on how quickly AlphaTauri went in pre-season testing. But let's look ahead to the Bahrain Grand Prix weekend. Uh, it's a little bit strange in that we're racing at the same venue as pre-season testing less less than two weeks, essentially after the end of testing, which is an unusual situation. Do you think the pecking order will have changed much in, the, in those two weeks? I don't think we can underestimate Mercedes. I think they would have thrown everything they've got available at the, um, at the post-test data. Uh, ditto uh, uh, Aston Martin. You know, we haven't really spoken about Aston Martin. Let's not forget they do have a four-time world champion there. They do have an awful lot of input from Mercedes. And, uh, you know, I, I think that they're going to be throwing an awful lot at it. The uh, the Alpha Tauri, of course, um, is very closely linked to the Red Bull. And we saw that uh, on the final day in testing. Ferrari seemed to have picked up their pace enormously since last year. So, you know, all around, I think that what we'll see is people building on what they've picked up from testing. 
They'll obviously uh, build on the, the strong points, try and eliminate the weak points. And they've had 10 days. And there's some very, very, very clever engineers out there. And very often, all it really needs is an understanding of, let's say, the new floor that they've got or an understanding of the new tires. And that can add half a second a lap sometimes. Of course, not always. Formula One is not that easy all the time. But, you know, that, that's not unknown. So let's talk about the race itself coming up on Sunday. It's unlikely that we'll get any kind of weather interruptions or anything like that, seeing as we're in the Bahrain desert. Who is your money on, Dieter? Is it Mercedes? Is it Red Bull? Is it Alfa Tauri? Who who do you think is actually going to be standing on the top step come, come Sunday evening? Well, I've, I've always said that if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be a journalist. I'd be a betting man. And I'd earn an awful lot more money than I would do at the moment, believe me. So I, I prefer to look at it in terms of whom we can't really exclude. And I don't think we could exclude Max from the podium. I don't think we could exclude either of the um, the uh, Alpha Tauri drivers. And I don't believe that we can exclude um, um, at least one, if not both, the Mercedes drivers. Yes, I know you can say that that's five, but I, I believe that the top three will come from those five drivers Unless, of course, there is a major incident at some stage which reshuffles the, the order. But that certainly was my reading from, from testing. But who knows? Once again, you know, everybody's been working very, very hard for the last 10 days. I believe that that stuff has been flown into Bahrain at a fair rate. Let's see what comes out of it. There's also been a change in dynamic at Red Bull Racing in that they have gone for the much more known quantity that is Sergio Perez. Uh, who, of course, won the Sakir Grand Prix there and, and claimed his first win at the end of 2020. He's a much, much different character uh, and a much he offers a much different contrast to Max Verstappen than the likes of Alex Albon and Pierre Gasly before him. Do you think Perez can get under Verstappen's skin this year? Um, I don't think he'll get under his skin so much as really push Max um, to the absolute limit. Occasionally, I got the impression that all you know, Max is a racer through and through, absolutely. But every now and then, you know, it's it's human to just need that slightly extra impetus here or there. And uh, it's, it's also very valuable for, for Red Bull to, to know that they've got two top draw drivers, both of them, incidentally, of course, Grand Prix winners, and where they can turn around and they know that the car is being pushed to the limit and that's how it behaves and this is what it needs and whatever else. And I think this is possibly where in the past uh, Max wasn't particularly well served by some of his teammates, where, for example, it was very difficult to devise um, a strategy which covered both cars because one of them wouldn't be in the in the uh, front runner. And equally, uh, it was very difficult to pick up things like tire wear, tire degradation or whatever. And I think that's where it's going to be really, really helpful. I do believe Checo could win a Grand Prix, at least one this year. I sincerely hope he does. I've got an awful lot of time for Checo, both as a human being, as a driver, as a man, as everything. And um, I think from that perspective, I think that Red Bull could not have made a better choice. I don't think Max is the type to really take it lying down if Sergio manages to even out-qualify him. Uh, no, but I think that Max is now mature enough to know that you know ultimately qualifying doesn't doesn't score you any points certainly not yet certainly not until we have some form of sprint qualifying um, and therefore he'll he'll play the long game and look at Sunday. Well, unlike Red Bull, the dynamic at Mercedes hasn't changed at all. Lewis Hamilton goes into another season after beating Valtteri Bottas again 
over the course of a year. Bottas, again, we're getting the, the usual pre-season pep talk from him. Uh, he says he's going to be more selfish this year and that he's going to be trying much more hard, uh, much harder to, to keep the team kind of focused on him. Uh, do you think that's something that he will succeed in? Well, first of all, it's very easy to be cynical, Thomas, about that, because as you say, you know, we're getting the usual sort of pre-season talk. Let's not forget that Nico Rosberg said that for, for three or four years, and guess what? He got it right <laughs> eventually. So I think, you know, I think that Valtteri is doing absolutely the right thing. He's talking himself up. He's also trying to lay down a marker that he's going to have to aim for. Um, and you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he if he does pull it off. Let's not forget he does have the, the right car, or certainly he has had the right car in the past. We believe that Mercedes will sort sort it out this year, um, and accordingly, you know, he he must be in with a sh- with a shot there. So one thing that's going to be trialed in 2021 is the introduction of sprint qualifying, which is supposed to be a, an addendum to the normal qualifying session. And that's going to be trialed at three Grand Prix this year, Dieter. They say so. Um, they haven't decided yet which ones they will be. They were looking at one stage at Monza, at Montreal and at Interlagos. I believe that um, uh, Silverstone came along and said, well, you know, we'd also be pretty interested in in having a look at it. Who knows? It could be three. It could be four. Um, You said that they will be trialing it. Um, At this stage, no decision has been taken. I think it's inevitable that it will be tried. but, But let's be quite clear at this point, no decision has yet been taken or if it has, it certainly hasn't yet been communicated. And um, but I believe that that it's it's all done by the shouting, basically. And the um, the format will be obviously qualifying on Friday afternoon, which will then determine the grid for the sprint qualifying event on Saturday, which will then determine the grid for the main race on Sunday, the Grand Prix on Sunday. They've decided to call, call it uh, sprint qualifying, assuming, of course, that it does get passed. I uh, decided to call it sprint qualifying effectively because I didn't want any confusion with, uh, you know, two race winners and whatever. So basically what will happen is that in real terms, the winner of the Saturday race will be the pole position winner, so to speak. And um, that will now still be debated with team bosses. And uh, But I believe that they're gradually falling into place. I believe that one of the uh, sticking points had been the costs where teams said, well, you know, we have a, we have two uh, first laps. The chances of breaking front wings, which cost 100000 bucks or whatever, are effectively doubled. So they've asked Liberty for some more money. I believe that the latest um, discussion point is rather than have some form of fixed fee, it will be uh, an insurance-type policy. So, yeah, the teams will be paid something for the wear and tear. But when there's an incident or if there's an incident, then what will happen is somebody will come and assess the, the damage and say, yes, Team A, your damage is a quarter million. Team B, your damage is 50,000. Right, uh, Liberty, pay them that amount of money. And I believe that that's how the, um, uh, the, the arguments over financing could be settled. Now, I'm old, I'm cynical, I'm a traditionalist. I'm not hugely in favour of this change of format to a Grand Prix weekend. I know everyone is saying we need to give it a try, we need to see how it how it works out. To me, this is a shift away 
uh, more towards a, an entertainment focus rather than a focus on it as a sporting event. What, what's your opinion on, on, the, on the matter? Well, I'm old, I'm grey, I'm a traditionalist, and my traditional approach tells me that Formula One has always been about evolution. If we have a look at the first cars in 1950, for example, they look completely different to the car that Lewis Hamilton or Max Verstappen are going to start the Grand Prix with on Sunday. And that's as a result of evolution. If we have a look at, at helmets, at driver overalls, there's been this constant evolution over the, the past 70 years. And I don't see why that can't also be applied to, uh, to race formats, provided it is done correctly, provided it's thought through, the regulations are framed correctly, and it's applied correctly. Well, it'll give us something else to argue about later on in the year anyway, Dieter. <laughs> I'm sure you're going to have plenty of arguments, Thomas, plenty of them. Absolutely. But let's talk about Williams now, right at the very back of the grid in, in 2020. There's been a huge change at Williams over the last six to eight months. The Williams family, of course, selling up um, US investment company Doralton Capital coming in and taking over. And Yost Capito has been appointed as CEO. And Dieter Yost, is a, he's an impressive figure, isn't he? He seems to have a firm hand on the tiller now. Williams seem to have a much stronger idea of where they're going. And it looks like the worst of the recent issues might be behind them. We hope so. I mean, Williams is a traditional team, the third oldest on the grid, uh, certainly in its current guise, it's the third oldest. Um, you know, there, there are others, for example, Tyrrell was, was founded before uh, the current Williams team, but that's gone through all sorts of um, iterations. I mean, it became BAR, then it became Honda, it's now Mercedes, etc. cetera. Uh, Williams is the... Um, the third oldest team racing under the name of its founder and also under the company registration number, etc. So, of course, it's it's a part of Formula One history. Uh, Jost, uh, when I was talking to him the other day, we actually discovered that we'd met at the end of 1988 in South Africa when he came out to a, a Porsche Turbo Cup race. And um, I'd entered a car in that for, for one of the South African drivers. And that's where we'd originally met. Um, once he mentioned it, I, I remembered meeting him. I thought that I'd originally met him in about 97 or 98. Um, and, of course, we had a good chat about the, 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 the Porsche Turbo Cup Championship back then. But basically, uh, you know, Jost is the right mix of, um, of executive, of racer, of passionate motorsport enthusiast, and he's also an engineer. So he's got the four major components uh, to draw on uh, in terms of rebuilding Williams. And then he has a fifth one, which is the external factor, which is Doralton, who have really committed to to their purchase, which is which is heartening. Of course, we'd love to know who owns Doralton ultimately. The the ultimate. Um, beneficiary of, of Doralton Capital is unknown. Yoss uh, tells me that if he could tell me, he would tell me, but he said he doesn't know either. He dealt with Matthew Savage, the chairman of, of Doralton, and basically um, he mapped out Doralton's vision for the team, and Yoss was quite happy with that without knowing the names of the, of the, the ultimate beneficiaries. 
Um, that I think is a is a good sign. It's a leap of faith in Matthew Savage as chairman, also in Dalton's plans. And the thing that most impressed me when I spoke to him was, you know, when I'd spoken to Williams people over the last two or three years, um, it became clear that the money for investment in terms of uh, machinery, in terms of composites area, etc., wasn't really there. Um, and when I put to 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 Yost that basically under the budget cap, you can't just throw money at capital items anymore. You can't just say, well, we're building you a wind tunnel. We're building you a factory. We'll spend 50, 50 million pounds on new machinery, et cetera. Um, CapEx is capped under the um, the budget cap. And he said, oh, but that's no problem. He said, you know, they spent an awful lot of money. If you walk into the machine shop, it's all brand new stuff in there, all installed last year. So Doralton realized the team requires major uh, investment and did so before the deadline, which was 31st of December last year. So they were able to get an awful lot of stuff in there, which frees them to, uh, to add additional capital expenditure items over the next four years. Well, hopefully all of this works out sufficiently for Williams to at least return to scoring some points this year? I do believe that they will uh, score points. I also believe that they won't place 10th. Um, unfortunately, I believe, and again, this is my, my personal projection, is that they'll probably beat Haas for the very simple reason that Haas have decided not to develop their car this year. And um, I think that, that if Williams do develop correctly, they could actually finish ninth, maybe even eighth in the championship, depending on what Sauber do. Let's talk about Ferrari. They had a, an absolutely dreadful 2020, their worst season since 1980. Mattia Bonotto has enacted some more technical department changes for this year. Uh, it does look like the, the Ferrari engine, which was their main uh, weak point last year, it looks like that is much stronger this year. But it doesn't appear like they're all that confident about being able to challenge at the very front just yet. Um, I think that what Ferrari will do is... Uh, put together a respectable season uh, and and start preparing fully for next year. Okay, so we've looked at what might happen at the opening race in Bahrain this weekend, but there's a long championship in front of us, Dieter, 23 races. Ultimately, who's going to come out on top, in your opinion? Well, again, I, I think we should look at the three that one couldn't exclude from, from the, the, the running order, so to speak. And I think that, obviously, we're talking uh, Lewis. Um, I think we should give uh, Valtteri a look in here. And I think we can't exclude Max. And if we really want a rank outsider on this, I think let's look at, at Checo. So I think it's going to come down to Mercedes versus Red Bull. And it's going to come down to the stronger driver in uh, either of those two teams who actually um, ends up wearing the crown for the final uh, season under the current uh, hybrid formula. Well, my money's on Max overall for the year. Just something tells me this is the year that Red Bull, that Honda in their, their final year, as official final year, and Max will finally be able to pull out all the stops and beat Lewis and Merck. But uh, ultimately, I think Merck are probably concentrating more 
on the uh, 2022 regulation. So it's it's just a gut feeling for me. I just think Max will be able to pull it off this year. So Dieter, you're going to be flying to Bahrain for your 342nd Grand Prix. It's a major, major achievement to have hit that many races, but the start of another season for you and uh, all the very best. And, and thanks very much for, for joining us on the Racing News 365 podcast. Absolute pleasure, Thomas. Thanks for inviting me. And I'm really, really pumped up about this year. I think it's going to be a great, great finale for this um, this formula. The Racing News 365 podcast will be back just after Easter when we'll be reviewing the opening races from the 2021 calendar.